Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Last episode, we spoke about Joel Schumacher's 1985 hit film, St. Elmo's Fire. While I was working on that episode, I got to thinking about another movie featuring two of the stars of that film, directed by one of those stars. The actors were Emilio Estevez and Demi Moore, and the movie was Wisdom. Emilio Estevez. They told me that when I grew up, I could be whatever I wanted to be, and I believed them. Demi Moore. All across the country, people are living vicariously through us. We've given people hope. Lovers. Why do I love you so much? Beats the hell out of me. Me too. You want out? I want to be with you. John, maybe I didn't understand what you were trying to do at first, but I do now. Heroes. I think he's great. I think she's great, too. I admire his commitment. He's helping the poor folks out. We have reports of bank customers clapping and cheering. What's that about me? It says that uh, you're a mindless goon who follows his every order, however ridiculous. Wisdom. Hi. Nice to meet you, sir. Not Bye. bad a guy. How are you? How are you doing? How are you? I'm going to get in trouble. Five seconds, Wisdom. Pretty wild, huh? Pretty wild. You know, I never really envisioned myself as a cause man. But people needed help. Wisdom. Written and directed by Emilio Estevez. Wisdom was the creation of then 23-year-old Estevez. The eldest son of actor Martin Sheen and artist Janet Sheen, he was bitten by the filmmaking bug as a young child. After accompanying his father to the Philippines during the making of Apocalypse Now, he would be enrolled in Santa Monica High, where he, his siblings Ramon, Rene, and Carlos, a.k.a. Charlie Sheen, and his friends Sean Penn, Chris Penn, Rob Lowe, and Chris Lowe, would write, act, and produce short films shot on their home video cameras, with Estevez or Penn often acting as director. While most of his friends wanted to be actors, he wanted to write and direct. But he was also savvy enough to know that it would be a quicker road to that end goal if he broke into the industry as an actor. But he wanted to make it, quote, on his own, unquote, so he would not change his name and try to capitalize on his father's success the way his brother Carlos would when he started out as an actor. But enough people in Hollywood knew who Ramon Estevez was, and enough people could easily see the family connection in Emilio's face to know who his father was. Emilio would graduate from Santa Monica High School in June 1980, and within a year, he would have already booked a role in his first studio film. The movie was Tim Hunter's screen adaptation of S.E. Hinton's 1979 novel Tex, and Estevez would play Johnny Collins the next-door neighbor too, and best friend of Matt Dillon's title character. Production would begin in and around Tulsa, Oklahoma in May 1981, shooting in many of the locations the author set her story to. Hinton herself would play a small role in the film and got to know the young actor during shooting. Several months later, before Tex opened in limited release in the southern U.S. in July of 1982, 
Martin Sheen's production company would option the screen rights to Hinton's 1971 novel, That Was Then, This Is Now, with Emilio put in charge of writing the screenplay. While continuing his growing acting career with roles in such movies as the horror film Nightmares and in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Hinton's The Outsiders, Estevez would hammer out his drafts for That Was Then, This Is Now, including one draft co-written with his new friend and Outsiders co-star Tom Cruise, in between shooting scenes with the Oscar-winning filmmaker. After The Outsiders made him and his co-stars teen heartthrobs, Estevez would make an interesting left turn on his career. Instead of trying to move up the Hollywood ladder, Estevez would team up with first-time British filmmaker Alex Cox on a little $1.5 million independent punk rock sci-fi comedy film. For my money, Repo Man is the best movie Cox or most of the cast will ever make, save Harry Dean Stanton, because of, you know, Paris, Texas. It's a damn masterpiece, and he's sensational in it. I don't need to tell you how good Repo Man is. But when it was released in theaters, first in 29 theaters in Los Angeles on May 4th, 1984, the film was not that much of a success. In fact, Universal who had picked up the film on a negative pickup just before production began, pulled the plug on the film after just two weeks because the grosses were so poor. The film would get a slight reprieve in June when the studio would release it in a handful of theaters in Chicago, where the film died again. The studio was ready to cut its losses when two things happened in July. First, the studio would open Repo Man on one screen in New York City for 4th of July weekend, the 8th Street Playhouse, which, if you were in New York City in the mid-80s, you would know was not the nicest theater in town. However, the film would get a very positive review from the much-respected Vincent Canby at the New York Times. He would call the film a truly zany farce and a neo-surreal fable, and compared Estevez's character Otto to Percival, the original hero in the quest for the Holy Grail. And second, the company's sister music label, MCA Records, demanded more support for the film because the soundtrack was appealing to disenfranchised young people around the country. So Universal would repackage the movie and re-release it in Los Angeles and New York, as well as give the film a first run in Boston on August 10th and this time the film would find some success. Roger Ebert would note in his review that the film dared to be unconventional, was funny, and that it just simply worked. He would later include the film on his list of the best films of 1984. In fact, 1984 was a very good year for Emilio Estevez. He would start the year by getting cast in John Hughes' The Breakfast Club. After that, he and his father's production company were able to secure $4.2 million in financing, independent of any major studio, 
for that was then this is now which would begin production in minnesota under the direction of christopher kane in august and estevez would need to have his scenes for the film front-loaded onto the production schedule as he was needed in washington dc for the start of shooting of saint elmo's fire which we covered in last week's episode in mid-october so production on the film that he had written would continue without him in the great lake state for another three weeks and it would be on the set of saint elmo's fire where Estevez would meet and fall in love with Demi Moore. But as good as 1984 was for Emilio Estevez, 1985 would change his life. In February, The Breakfast Club would open to rave reviews and fantastic box office. In April, he would propose to Demi Moore, and the pair would move in together into a home they'd buy in Malibu. In June, the reviews for St. Elmo's Fire weren't great, but the film was an unqualified hit. In July, he would begin shooting the Stephen King adaptation Maximum Overdrive in North Carolina. In November, That Was Then, This Is Now would open to decent reviews and acceptable box office gross. But most importantly, in October, Estevez would make the deal that would give him the chance to direct his first feature film. Wisdom was just one of several screenplays he had been working on during the previous two years. Another, called Clear Intent, he had written after shooting St. Elmo's Fire in the hopes that John Hughes would produce and or direct it. Hughes would praise the screenplay in that infamous Brat Pack article in New York Magazine, but it would be Estevez who would end up directing the movie in 1990, when he and his brother Charlie would star together as trash men in the black comedy Men at Work. Wisdom was written for Estevez to star in alongside Demi Moore as his character's girlfriend. Moore herself was having a career breakout at the end of 1985 when she was chosen to star in the highly anticipated big screen adaptation of David Mamet's Sexual Perversity in Chicago, in which she would co-star with Rob Lowe. Estevez's deal to write, direct, and star in Wisdom was made with the independent production company Gladden Entertainment. Gladden was a production company started in 1984 by David Beagleman, the one-time head of Columbia Pictures, who had resigned in disgrace in 1977 after having forged a company check for $10,000 in the name of Oscar-winning actor Cliff Robertson. Beagleman's partner at Gladden, was Bruce McNall, a Canadian businessman who would become the owner of the Los Angeles Kings hockey team in 1988 and would bring Wayne Gretzky to the team shortly thereafter, only to be forced to sell the team five years later after having been convicted of defrauding six banks out of $236 million during a 10-year period between 1983 and 1993. But that's another story for another time. Gladden was named after Beagleman's wife Gladys and itself was born from the ashes of Sherwood Productions, the company that had made such films as War Games, Mr. Mom, Buckaroo Banzai, and the Demi Moore film Blame It on Rio. Wisdom would be Gladden's second production after the Marshall Brickman film The Manhattan Project and would be released through their output deal with 20th Century Fox. Gladden would also be responsible for the Fabulous Baker Boys and both The Mannequin 
and weekend at Bernie's Cinematic Universes a few years later. Wisdom would be scheduled to begin production in February 1986 at a budget of $6.5 million. And at the age of 23, Emilio Estevez would become the youngest person to ever write, direct, and star in a studio motion picture. The screenplay follows John Wisdom, a young man in his early 20s from a somewhat affluent Los Angeles family whose life isn't going anywhere, thanks in large part to a felony conviction he attained when he got drunk the night he graduated from high school, stole a car, and smashed it up. He never served time, but most people won't give him a chance because of that conviction. And then when he finally does get a job as a night janitor in a building, he gets fired not because he's doing a bad job, because his boss knows that his heart is not in it. He can't even keep a job at a third-rate burger joint when his manager finds out he lied on his application about not having a felony conviction. So John Wisdom decides that if the world is going to treat him like a criminal, he's going to become a criminal. Ah, but what kind of criminal will he be? He was, as he states in voiceover, a criminal without a crime. He considers robbery a sound investment for the limited time it takes, but he thinks you really need to be into the money to make it worth your while. Which, of course, begs the question, if you're not into money, why do you need a job so damn badly? He considers kidnapping, but he doesn't want to be stuck with some crying brat for days on end waiting for a payout. Arson is no good, since the big money in arson is with the owners of the buildings being torched, collecting on the insurance. And he will not consider murder, because he doesn't have the stomach for it. As fate would have it, he pops a quarter into a television attached to a seat at the Union Station train station in downtown Los Angeles, which very much was a thing in the mid-80s. And he comes across a documentary about people suffering job losses, bankruptcy, and home foreclosures across the nation. So he decides to become not a bank robber per se, although he does take some money along the way, but a liberator of the loan documents the banks held. If he could burn the papers the banks had on the downtrodden farmers and the good, honest, decent people of the nation, the better it would be for the little person to get themselves back up on their feet. Now, you have to remember that in 1986, we didn't have the kind of electronic banking we have today, where everything is stored and easily accessed from computer bases around the world. In many ways, what John Wisdom was going to do for the people was a lo-fi version of what Tyler Durden and his Space Monkeys would do with Project Mayhem at the end of Fight Club. But in 1986, that kind of thing would only be possible by driving from bank to bank across the country. John inadvertently gets his loving, understanding girlfriend Karen, who herself is working two jobs just to make ends meet, involved in his scheme. But once she's in, she's in. And the Bonnie and Clyde of the 80s become modern folk heroes as they crisscross the Southwest, saving as many people as they can one stop at a time. Of course, the FBI doesn't particularly like anarchists screwing up the financial solvency of banks and savings and loans. So Agent Williamson and his team are sent to figure out where John and Karen will strike. Production would begin in Los Angeles on February 13, 1986, and would work its way up north, 
using many locations in the San Joaquin Valley as stand-ins for New Mexico, Colorado, and Minnesota, before completing shooting on April 24th in Sacramento, where Estevez would use the football field at American River College for the film's climax. Fox did have some concerns about Estevez working as an actor and a director at the same time, and were able to convince him to allow Robert Wise, the four-time Academy Award-winning director of such classics as The Day the Earth Stood Still, West Side Story, and The Sound of Music, to act as a directing supervisor for the first-time filmmaker. There is no indication that Wise did any major directing on the film, although there are several moments in the movie where one cannot help but think that he leaned into Estevez and whispered in his ear a small idea that would end up in a scene. Along with Wise, Estevez was surrounded by some of the best craftspeople in the business. His cinematographer, Adam Greenberg, had already worked with Sam Fuller on The Big Red One and James Cameron on The Terminator. Editor Michael Kahn was Steven Spielberg's favorite film cutter, having worked on Close Encounters, 1941, Raiders, Temple of Doom, and The Color Purple. And the stunts were coordinated by the legendary Bud Davis, whose credits over 35 years run the gamut from the town that dreaded sundown to inglorious bastards. There were some important up-and-comers working on the film as well. This would only be production designer Dennis Gassner's second film after The Hitcher, but you might recognize his name from some of the films he helped design after Wisdom, including Field of Dreams, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, The Last Three Bond Films to Date, and Blade Runner 2049. And Wisdom would be the fourth movie scored by Danny Elfman. Wisdom would have the distinction of being the very last movie released into theaters in 1986, when Fox put the film into 788 theaters on Wednesday, December 31st. The reviews would not be kind. Vincent Canby in the New York Times would describe the young actor-writer-director as possibly talented, and Rick Kogan in the Chicago Tribune would task the film for being mindlessly playful in its treatment of crime. While Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times noted that the film often lacked credibility, but did have some compensating factors, including ambition, guts, and warmth. Audiences would mostly ignore the film, trying to wedge its way into a crowded post-Christmas marketplace. The film would open in 11th place, with $1.994 million in its first five days, and it wouldn't get better from there. The second week would see the film add three theaters, but lose more than 45% of its opening week audience. By week three, the film was playing mostly in dollar houses, where it would hang on for a few more months, but the final box office tally would end up totaling just $5.7 million. It didn't help the film that much that Estevez and Moore would have a fairly public falling out between the completion of shooting and the theatrical release of the film. It's admittedly distracting to stay with a film that features recent real-life lovebirds acting all lovey-dovey when you know they're no longer together. It also didn't help the film that it's far too earnest in ways that only a movie from a 23-year-old man from a privileged background could be. I watched the film for the first time since 1986 a couple days ago. There are a lot of problems with the film, most noticeably the absolute WTF last scene of the film. Had the entire film been just a daydream? 
while John Wisdom, or whatever his name really is, soaked in the bathtub of his upper-middle-class parents' mid-century craftsman house? There's a lot of fawning over its lead actor and actress, like an uncomfortable amount of obsequiousness. And Estevez and Morris's constant yelling at each other in practically every scene once they hit the road gets ingratiating very quickly. But there are also a lot of sweet little moments we just don't get in a lot of movies anymore. It's also refreshing that Wisdom and Agent Williamson do not have the typical good guy, bad guy dynamic. Wisdom is a better film than it deserves to be, but it probably would have been a more successful film had the two lead roles, John and Karen, been played by other actors. I honestly don't know who, but for me, the film feels incomplete because it's hard for any actor to direct a good movie when they are also the lead and title character, let alone a first-time filmmaker. It feels as if Emilio Estevez, the actor, wasn't getting enough direction from Emilio Estevez, the director, who was working from a decent but not great screenplay by Emilio Estevez, the writer, who wouldn't let a word of his masterpiece be changed. And while Demi Moore is stunningly beautiful on screen, and she's got that great sultry voice that makes her stand out, she's not quite yet that good of an actor. She would get there in a few years. The film also gets extra props from me simply because of the casting of Tom Skerritt as John's dad. Because Tom Skerritt is always just such a great and underrated actor who deserved a better career in movies. And it's nice to see Veronica Cartwright not be so shrill on screen. Now, Veronica Cartwright does shrill on screen oh so well, but that's not the only thing she can do. And it's great when a director just lets her be. You know, Playing the mother of a fugitive would be a perfect time for her character to get a little nuts. But Estevez wisely doesn't let Mrs. Wisdom go that route, and her scenes are far more effective because of it. The film has gathered a kind of cult following in the decades since its theatrical release, but it's not so easily available today. As of January 2021, you can purchase a print-on-demand copy of the movie on DVD from the Warner Brothers archives for $12.99, or you can stream a standard definition copy of the film from Fandango Now for $2.99. Movie theaters can also rent a copy of the movie to show in their theaters from Park Circus. Emilio Estevez has mostly disappeared from the Hollywood spotlight after his successes in the 80s and 90s. In the last 20 years, he's directed three films, and he's played small roles in two movies for other filmmakers. He spends most of his life now in Cincinnati where he is attempting to create a new film community in the Ohio Valley region. We are expected, however, to see him again soon as Gordon Bombay on the Disney Plus reboot of The Mighty Ducks. Demi Moore would become one of the biggest movie stars in the world in the 1990s and one of the most written about thanks to her marriages to Bruce Willis and Ashton Kutcher. She would work with Emilio Estevez on his 2006 film about the night Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, and in 2019, she would release an autobiography that would become a number one bestseller. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.